Uh, well, we are going to get into the message for today from the book of John, chapter 7. Book of John, chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24. So we are continuing our series in the book of John. Last week was on chapter 6 and uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Let's read through this passage today. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks of his own authority, on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is God's word. So here we can see that in verse 1 it says, after this. So as I just mentioned, the this is referring to John chapter 6, to the feeding of the 5,000. So after that took place, Jesus remained in that area of Galilee. Galilee was in the northern part of um, Israel. If you remember, Jesus, when he was in the Jerusalem area, when he went to Galilee, he, ha he passed through Samaria. If you remember that, John chapter 4, and then he went up to Galilee, and that's where he remained. He was up there in Galilee. It says he would not go about Judea, meaning the southern area, meaning the area near Jerusalem, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, when it says the Jews, it doesn't mean all Jews. It means particularly the religious leaders. If you remember from John chapter 5, Jesus healed the invalid by the pool 
of Bethesda. And he did that on the Sabbath. And because of that, it's said in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So from that point on, the religious leaders were so upset at Jesus that he broke the Sabbath in their mind and that he called himself, called God his father, thereby equating himself with God that they wanted to kill him. So because of that, Jesus stayed away from the Jerusalem area, not because he was afraid to die. He was not afraid to die. In fact, he came into this world, took on the form of man in order to die. He came to die. He came to die upon a cross to give his life for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus did not fear death, but he did not want to go to Jerusalem because it was not yet time for him to die. His hour had not yet come. He he didn't want to enter into some type of premature conflict with the religious leaders. It just, it wasn't time yet. So Jesus avoided the area in Jerusalem. Now, though, in verse 2, it says the Feast of Booths was at hand. Another name for this is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the three major Jewish feasts outlined in the Old Testament that all men all men in Israel had to go to Jerusalem, had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year for these special feasts. So now Jesus had to go because Jesus was a law-abiding Jew. He kept the law of God. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, when I, when I used to read this passage, my, my thinking of what this passage was saying was this. Basically, that key verse there, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. What I thought John was saying was basically this. His brothers were like, you think you're somebody? You think you're all high and mighty, hoity-toity Messiah? If that's who you think you are, then go on up to Jerusalem. Go and prove it. Go up into the big boy leagues. Go and, and prove it. Show yourself to the world if you think you're somebody. Because his brothers didn't believe in him. They didn't believe who he was. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. But actually, that's, I don't believe that that is the unbelief that John is talking about here. The unbelief of his brothers was a different kind of unbelief. It was the unbelief, not that he was the Messiah or somebody special or that he did miracles, but it was the unbelief of not understanding who Jesus really was. Their understanding of him was of a miracle worker. I believe that. They saw, I don't know how many miracles they had seen Jesus perform by now, including feeding 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people all together, including women and children. I bet you his brothers ate that bread, ate that fish as well. It wasn't that they didn't believe that he was a miracle worker. I think they even believed that he was potentially a messianic figure, that he was going to become somebody amazing and special. So what did they want him to do? Maybe they were concerned. Jesus, you, you know, a lot of people just left you after that weird cannibalistic teaching that you just gave. 
about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. We're your brothers, so we'll overlook that for a moment. But you lost a lot of people. Hey, if you're going to be somebody, go to Jerusalem. Go up to the center. Go to, you know, like you're an actor. You know, they say you can't become an actor. You got to go to L.A., right? You, you want to be an actor? You got to go to L.A. type of thing. Jesus, you want to be a Messiah? You got to go to Jerusalem. Maybe if you go to Jerusalem, a lot of people will start following you again. You'll make a name for yourself. See, their unbelief in Jesus was, was about who he was. They did not understand his identity. They did not understand who he really was. They, they thought, hey, maybe you can go and you can get more followers. You can get more people to, to be your disciples again. Go prove yourself in Jerusalem, and then people will follow you. I think that's the type of unbelief. Just like the crowds. They certainly saw the miracles that he could do, but they walked away because they didn't understand who Jesus really was, that he would give his flesh upon the cross, that he would shed his blood upon the cross for the sins of mankind. That was the unbelief that his brothers had. So how does Jesus respond to them? He says to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now, there is a lot going on here, and I want to break this down, this saying of Jesus, into its four constituent parts here. Each part is very important. Jesus says to his brothers, my time has not yet come. This is why I can't go to Jerusalem. It's not my time yet. The word time here is not the word chronos in Greek, meaning chronological time, but it's the word kairos. Kairos is different. It's not chronological time. It is not quantitative time. Kairos is talking about more of a qualitative time. A qualitative time. Leon Morris, the theologian, he said, it points to the suitable time, the right time, the favorable opportunity. It is talking about the right moment to do a specific thing, a kairos moment. What Jesus is saying when he says, my time has not yet come, that's why I'm not going to Jerusalem. What he's saying is, is I operate on the Father's schedule. I live according to the Father's will. And because of that, because it is not the Father's will for me to go to Jerusalem yet, it is not according to the Father's schedule for me to go up there, for me to show myself to the world, for me to go to the cross, it's not time. I don't operate on my own time or my own schedule. I operate on God the Father's schedule. In chapter 5, earlier, Jesus had said to the people, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is what Jesus means when he says, my time has not yet come. I don't operate by my own schedule. I only do what the Father wants me to do. I operate based on his schedule. But he said to his brothers, but your time is always here. Now, I think there's a bit of sarcasm in that when he says that to them. What Jesus is saying to them, because they don't understand who he is, because they're looking at him in the wrong way, because they're looking at him as, as an earthly Messiah, Jesus is saying to them, your time is always here. You're not concerned about the schedule of God. 
You're not concerned about doing the will of God. You just, you want me to be an earthly Messiah so that we can overthrow Rome so that maybe our lives will get better. Or maybe you want to have a celebrity brother because if I'm famous and I have a big following, then that might accrue some benefits to you guys as well. Maybe they wanted a little bit of glory themselves by being able to say, yeah, you know that Jesus, that Messiah, I'm his brother. I taught him everything he knows, right? They, they had these other desires. Jesus is saying, your time is always here. You do what you want when you want. You're not concerned about the will of God. You're concerned about earthly glory. You're concerned about having an easier life in this earth. That's how you live. You live on your own schedule. Therefore, the world cannot hate you. Now, why does Jesus say that? He's talking about time. And then he says, the world cannot hate you. That's why the world can't hate you. What does he mean by that? He says to his brothers, the world can't hate you because all of your values and your desires for glory, for an easier life, these line up perfectly with the values of this world. What you want, my brothers, is what the world wants. You want glory. You want an easier life. You want Basically, everything that this world tells you to want is what you want. Everything that the devil tells you to want is what you want. That's what the devil came and tempted Jesus with and said, bow down to me in all the kingdoms of the world. I will give them to you. I'll give you glory. That's what the devil wants for his brothers. He wants glory for them. Jesus is saying, everything that you want is in alignment with what the world wants. You are children of this world. This is why the world does not hate you because you love the world. You're in alignment. You agree with everything in this world. But, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus says, you know, you know how you want me to go and show myself to the world, my works? You know what's going to happen when I show myself to the world on God's schedule, when it is the right time, when I show myself to the world, the world will crucify me. Why? Because the world hates what I have to say. Why? What do you have to say, Jesus? Because Jesus' message to our world is you are hopelessly lost. Hopelessly lost. You have a debt because of sin that you can never hope to repay. No matter how nice you are, no matter how much philanthropy you do, no matter how many grannies you help across the street, no matter how good of a person you are, there's nothing that you can do to repay the debt of sin that you've incurred by sinning against God. Because Jesus says to the world, what you deserve is eternal punishment from God because of this sin. And there's nothing that we can do about that. Jesus says to the world, you have rejected the true God of the universe and replaced him with false gods of earthly glory, pleasure, and comfort. This is the message Jesus brings to the world. This is the why the world hates him. Why, why in, in chapter 1 of this gospel of John, John said that Jesus was the light that came into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They hated Jesus so much that they eventually crucified him. Now, 
This is, this is very relevant for us, Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is extremely relevant for us in our understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus and to follow him. Because if we are not careful, if we are not careful, we can end up like Jesus' brothers. We can end up with, with these dangerous assumptions and desires within our heart. What desires? That simple formula that Jesus said, your time is always here, plus the world cannot hate you. That's what we desire. That's what we desire. And if we're not careful, we live for those two things. Your time is always here, and the world cannot hate you. What do I mean by that? Your time is always here. What does that mean? What Jesus is saying to them is, what, what is your desire? Your desire is to do what you want when you want. Not to live according to the Father's schedule. Not to live according to the Father's will. Your desire is to do what you want when you want. Your time is always here. Isn't that the world's definition of freedom? Isn't that the world's definition of freedom? Freedom means I get to do what I want when I want. Isn't that what so many people strive for in, 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 in their work or, or trying, to, trying to earn a lot of money? Isn't it so that I can live where I want, in the house that I want, I can drive the car that I want, I can eat what I want, I can vacation where I want? In fact, if I don't want to work, I'd prefer not to work. I could spend my days on the golf course. Or if I want to work, I work on my own terms. I do whatever I want. Isn't that the world's definition of freedom? To do what you want when you want. Your time is always here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we're not careful, if we think about it, is that what you're working towards right now? Is that what you're striving so hard towards in your work, in your life, in your view of money, to be able to do what you want when you want? Is that your goal? Or is it a heart that says, God, I want to do what you want when you want? I want to live a life in Kairos time. Not just letting Kronos time pass me by, but I want to live in every moment that you have made for me according to your perfect will. I want to walk in that Kairos moment. I want to live a life of purpose and of meaning. I want to do what you want when you want. If we're not careful, we can desire as well that the world would not hate us. Oh, it's so devious. It's so easy to think, you know, of course that's what I want. I don't want the world to hate me. I'll be honest, I don't want the world to hate me. Anybody here want the world to hate you? Most of us aren't masochists in that way. We don't want to be hated by the world. You know, we, 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 we may have this false, below-the-surface standard that we're not aware of that life is supposed to be smooth. Life is supposed to be pain-free. That's my goal. And if it's not smooth, if it gets bumpy, if it's filled with pain, then something is wrong there. Something is very wrong. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says that the world hates him. Why? Because when you actually begin to do the things that God wants you to do, when he wants you to do them, and you live in alignment with the life that Jesus called you to live, you will be hated by this world because you will be living in a value system in opposition to this world. 
and the world doesn't like that, and the devil doesn't like that. Jesus said later in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is saying is, you know, when things don't go well in this life, it isn't necessarily because there's something wrong. It might be because there's something very, very right. And the converse is true as well. If everything is going very, very smooth in your life, don't just naturally assume, well, that must mean I'm winning at life. No, it could very well mean that you love this world. You're a child of this world, and that's why the world is loving you, and everything is going smoothly. You may have a very smooth life, a very pain-free life, but at the same time, a life of very little spiritual substance because you're simply a child of the world. But, brothers and sisters, if your goal is to do what God wants, when he wants, life may get difficult. In fact, life will get difficult at times. Because doing what God wants when he wants is hard. It's challenging. He may call you to share the gospel with somebody. When you make yourself available to him, he may say, go share the gospel with that person. You know what? You might get rejected. That's hard. We don't like being rejected. When you say, God, I'll do what you want when you want, he may say, go and talk to your brother or talk to your sister about the sin in his or her life because that's what it means to love your brother and sister. Not to let them go on and sin in their life, but to talk to them, to confront them, to, to the lovingly speak the truth and love to them. But you know what? That may be a difficult conversation to have. That may not make your day as smooth as you had hoped it would be. When you say, God, I will do what you want when you want, he may say, good. I want you to be more generous with your finances and your resources and help others. And that might mean life becomes more difficult for you as you have less for yourself or for your own family. Doing what God wants when he wants may, in fact, at times will make life more difficult for you. You know, when, when, when Christine and I decided to come out here to, New York, to, to the Bay Area from New York City, that was not our plan. <laughs> that was not doing what we wanted to, when we wanted to. That was, we believe, God's plan. But it was hard. It was really, really hard. It was difficult. It meant leaving New York, where we never thought we would leave there. That was difficult for us. It meant moving my mother, who was sick with Parkinson's, out here with us because we were the primary caregivers for her as well. And, and, and taking her away from some of her friends, that was difficult as well. It meant taking our kids out of their schools in New York, and we had worked so hard to get them into these perfect public schools in New York. Man, we played that public school lottery game, and we were so good at it. We won at it just when everything was perfect. We said, we're going to California. And right before we leave, we get a letter from a housing lottery saying, you have qualified for a BMR, below market rate rental, in Brooklyn Heights. Brand new, two-bedroom, two-bath apartment for 22,000 something dollars. I was like, no, God, this is hard. This is hard. This is hard. Doing God's will, doing what he wants, when he wants it, at times will be difficult and will be challenging. It won't be our plan for a smooth life. Jesus said when we follow him, 
the world will hate us. Now, hold that thought for a moment because I won't end it with that downer. I will come back. So what happens here? Verse 10, Jesus, it says, after Jesus' brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So Jesus' brothers go up to the festival, then Jesus goes up, and, and I, I know, you know, lest we think that, oh, did Jesus here change his mind? Was he, and, and then did he go up privately because he was kind of sheepish about it? Well, I told my brothers I wasn't going to go. Now I don't want them to think that they were right or something like that. No, I, that's not what it was. Jesus, I definitely think he wanted them to understand that he was not going on their schedule, but he would go up when the Father called him. Certainly he didn't want to go up to show himself to the world in their way of thinking, which is why he went up privately as well, not publicly. Perhaps he went up there this way because, I don't know, if he went up at the beginning of the feast, maybe there would have been some premature triumphal entry where the crowds were like, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. Let's bring him in. Make him king. Make him the Messiah. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't until verse 14 says the middle of the feast, the middle of the feast that Jesus went into the temple, began teaching. That was the Kairos moment. That was the moment according to the schedule of the father that Jesus was to go to make himself known and to begin to teach the people according to the schedule of the father. Now, as he begins teaching, what happens here? It says the Jews marveled. They marveled. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? What are they saying? What they're saying is, we need to understand the culture of that time. The culture of that time was that anybody who teaches in the temple, in the synagogue, it's not just like anybody can go and teach. Right? Like anybody who wants to go up there, hey, it's like, you know, karaoke night, right? Anybody can come on up, read a portion of the Torah, expound a little bit. No, you had to be specially selected to go into rabbinical school. You, you had to be chosen, uh, you know, out of, uh, hey, you were a farmer, you were going to be a fisherman, but you showed promise, so you're going to come and be trained. And then only the best of the best eventually became called by a rabbi to go and to be disciples of the rabbi. And you will learn under these rabbis. And those students, the ones who did well, were the ones who were invited to be able to go and speak in the temple, to be able to teach. This is how things were done. So these people, they saw Jesus, and he goes and he teaches. And it looks like he has some really interesting, amazing things to say. I don't know what he was teaching on in the law, probably, but people were marveling at this. And they said, this guy's a carpenter. He never went to the yeshiva. He never studied under a rabbi. How is it that this guy can come and teach in this way? Because for them, teaching always referred to the teaching of the rabbis before them. They, were, they, they, they deferred to the wisdom that came before them. Now, what does Jesus say? Jesus answers them. He said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So Jesus, I, I think here, kind of goes along with, plays along with this rabbinic tradition of theirs. He says, I do have a rabbi, a quote-unquote rabbi. My teaching is not my own. My teaching comes from my father. In other words, from God in heaven. I teach what he wants me to teach. This is why in John chapter 1, John calls Jesus the word of God because he so perfectly represents God the Father. 
Hebrews says he is the, the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the manifestation of God. That, that when Jesus speaks, it is God speaking. He is the very word of God. And he only speaks what his father wants him to speak. And now he says something here really, really difficult. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What is Jesus saying here? If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether, my, whether the teaching is from God. What is he saying? If anyone's will is to do God's will, if that's the case with you, then you will recognize that I am speaking in behalf of God, that my words are truth, that my words are divine teaching. What is he saying here? What he's saying here is anybody whose will is to do God's will, I believe that's referring to faith, that you have faith in God, that you believe in God. If you believe in God, if you believe in Jesus, his son, then you will come to see that the teachings of Jesus are true. Now, what does this mean? This means that believing in Jesus, believing his word, is not primarily an intellectual matter, but a spiritual one. But a spiritual one. That's what it's talking about here. You, you, you can't approach Jesus and say, hmm, I will evaluate your teachings with my intellect, with my rationality, and then I will decide whether or not you are the truth. We can't. We need, it's a spiritual thing. We need the Holy Spirit to do that with us. This is why earlier in chapter 5, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody can come to me. Nobody can believe in me unless God first brings you to me, gives you faith. In fact, later in chapter 16, Jesus says about the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. It's the Holy Spirit who guides you into the truth to help you to recognize the truth of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you might, you might be listening to this and saying, what? So you're saying, in order for me to believe that Jesus' words are true, I need to believe that Jesus is God. That's really circular. Are you saying I just need blind faith? No, I'm not saying that because Jesus has given plenty of evidence for us that he is true. In John 10, it says, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Jesus is not saying believe because of blind faith. He's given plenty of evidence to this world that he is God. The miracles that he's done that's been recorded. The tomb that was empty that's been recorded. That he rose from the grave is proof to this world that he is the son of God. No, it's not blind faith. He says, look at the works that I've done. This is how you will know that I am the son of God. But, but also, but there's something more here as well. Okay? 
Hold that thought as well for a moment. Hold that thought. It's not blind faith. He's given us evidence of the empty tomb, but then why does he say this? Anyone's will whose, whose will is to do the will of God will know that my teaching is from God. In verse 18, Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Okay, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, you can trust me. My words are true because I'm not here seeking my own glory. I'm seeking the glory of God the Father. That's what he's saying here. D.A. Carson, one of my favorite theologians, he said, he said this about Jesus. He is as trustworthy as his motives are unmixed. His desire is for the glory of God. Now, then he goes weirdly, weirdly to me, not weirdly to him, but he goes into Moses. He starts talking about Moses. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? This is, when, you, when I read this, it's like, Jesus, this is weird. Is this like a change of subject? Is this, are these verses placed in the wrong places? Why are you suddenly talking about Moses? Why are you talking about the law there and how people are seeking to kill you? And this is when people go, who's seeking to kill you? You got a demon, man. What's wrong with you? Why does Jesus talk about this? I think this is why he's saying this. This is the flow of the argument here. Jesus is saying, hey, you, you're, you're amazed that I'm teaching the way, I, way that I am, even though I didn't study under a rabbi even though I don't appeal to a higher rabbinical authority? Well, I do. I appeal to God the Father, if you want to play that game. My teaching's not my own. It comes from God the Father. But listen, guys, you want to talk about authority? If you want to talk about authority, how come you guys don't respect authority? Look, you have, forget Rabbi Hillel, forget Rabbi this guy or Rabbi that guy. You got Rabbi Moses, Moses gave you the law. What an authority. Moses gave you the law, yet you don't keep the law. You rebel against his authority. Why do you do this? Why did Jesus say this? Well, because Jesus says here, look, I did one work, the healing at the pool of Bethesda, right? Healing of the invalid man. He said, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What's Jesus saying here? It's very simple. He's saying this. He's saying to the Jews, to the religious leaders, you guys are okay with breaking the law, meaning the Sabbath. Why? They circumcise, if a boy, every boy had to be circumcised on the eighth day. That was Torah. That was the law. If the eighth day happened to fall on the Sabbath, they had a decision to make. Do we do that, that they considered work? Do we break the Sabbath law in order to circumcise this boy? Their answer was yes. Why? We, because we're breaking the law in order to keep the law. They understand. Oh, well, we're not really breaking the law because we're keeping the law of God. We're circumcising this boy. We're doing this physical thing to this boy. We're circumcising him because that is the greater good. And Jesus then says, well, then why are you trying to kill me? Because I broke the law. I quote unquote broke the law, your Sabbath, in order to keep an even greater 
law. To keep the law in an even greater way, I heal the whole man's body. Isn't that what the law is about? Healing? Doing good to people? And I healed that invalid to point people to the reality that through faith in me, true healing comes. Spiritual healing and eternal healing of the soul and of the body. I broke the law in order to keep the law in an even greater way. Why are you seeking to kill me because of that? And in fact, in fact, you see, Jesus brings out the reality here that these religious leaders, these Pharisees, actually did not care about authority or the law. They cared about themselves. In Matthew 23, he exposes them. He says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. These are religious like clothing that, that, that to, to make them look very spiritual. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. What does Jesus say there in Matthew 23? He's saying that they're using religion in order to glorify themselves, to be somebody, to be recognized, to be seen as somebody special in society. They don't care about the law. They don't care about authority. They don't care about God in that sense. They're doing it for their own glory, not for the glory of God. Now, let me tie this all together. Let me tie this all together because I, I know this is, there's a lot going on here. Going back, if you're not a Christian and you're asking, what in the world? <laughs> I need to believe in Jesus in order to see that the teachings of Jesus are true. That sounds so circular. No, well, first, the evidence of the empty tomb is there. Okay, the evidence of the empty tomb is there. But here's, here's, here's where what Jesus is saying comes into play. Look, if, if the evidence for Jesus, if you, do, if you search it, if you study it, and you find that it is compelling, the miracles and the empty tomb, text criticism, history handed down to us, and I believe that that evidence is compelling. If you find that it's compelling, but you still don't believe in Jesus then perhaps it is not an intellectual issue, but it is a spiritual issue. In other words, what it comes down to is that, could it be that at the end of the day, it's not because you don't know enough or because the evidence for Jesus isn't compelling enough, but it's because at the end of the day, you don't want another authority in your life. You don't want God to be your authority. You want to do what you want to do when you want to do it. You want to have a smooth and pain-free life. And you don't want to come and say, I acknowledge, God, that you are the maker of heaven and earth. You created me, and I belong to you. And my life is meant to be lived according to your time, your schedule, unto your glory and for your name. I just submit that to you as a question to ponder, to consider. If you have examined the evidence for Christ, if the evidence is compelling, and I believe by all historical standards it is, is there something else that's keeping you from God that's not intellectual, but it's a matter of the heart? You just don't want God to be your God. You want to be your own God. If that's what's going on in your heart, no amount of intellectual arguments or evidence or reasoning is going to change your mind. 
because it's a matter of your heart. Would you consider that? Would you consider that? Is that what's going on? If it is, if it is, I implore you, if you are willing this day to bring even that heart to God and to say, okay, God, this is the real deal. This is what's really going on in my heart. I don't know if I want you to be my God, but, 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 I, but I, want, I want you, but I don't want you, and I, I don't know what to do with this. Would, and if you pray, God, would you help me with this? Man, that's such a good prayer. That's so real. God honors honest prayers about where you are. If it's a matter of your heart, bring it to him. And here, and and I'm going to close with this, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, to Christians here in this room, this message is very pertinent for us as well. Now, I told you earlier, I gave you some bad news. I gave you a downer. The more you desire to do God's will, to do what he wants you to do when he wants you to do it, to live for him, the more the world will hate you. The more life may get bumpy because you will realize this world is not your home. This world does not take kindly to those who do not love this world. Satan does not take kindly to those who are seeking to actually live according to the Kairos time and moments of God. Life may get more difficult. Life may get harder. But here's the thing. When when you choose still to do what God wants you to do when he wants you to do it, when you are willing to embrace that life of the cross, to follow after Jesus, to to say this world is not my own. If you will to do the will of God, you will come to see the teachings of Jesus to be true. In other words, you will come to see more and more that the word of God is real, it is true, it is so sweet. The more you are willing to do the will of God, even though it's hard, you will come to see that God's word is true. It is sweet. It is better. But you need to make that choice. You need to make that choice. If you don't, if you're not willing to do what God wants you to do when he wants you to do it, if you're just seeking the smooth life, a lot of the word of God won't make sense to you. And you will find it unlivable. You will find it unfollowable you will find it to be radical or extreme. Or who can really do that? Come on, you're exaggerating, right? That's just, that's the, that, you're not, you don't mean that, do you, Jesus? You will find it to be weird and unacceptable. But when you are willing to take up the cross, to do what God wants you to do when he wants you to do it, to live the life, at times even of suffering, you will find Jesus' words to be so true and so sweet. For example, if, if, you, if you decide, Jesus, all of my material possessions, everything that I own, everything that I had does not belong to me, but I am simply a steward of everything that you have given me, life, life, may, life will get harder. Jesus may say, good, I call you to radical generosity. That's hard. I call you to trust in God and not in money. That's hard. It's hard because it will mean less for you. It's hard because it may mean less for your family. It may mean more difficult choices for you. But you know what will happen too? You will see the sweetness of God. You will be able to say things like what the writer of Proverbs says. 
When he says, only two things, two things I ask of you, God, two things, don't deny them. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. How do you get there? How do you, how do you get to the place where you say, God, actually, I, I don't want too much because nothing is more important to me than wanting you, than seeing that you are the center of my life. And if I have too much, I may become proud. I may be, feel like I don't need you. And God, no, that's, that's not worth it. That's not worth it. You see what happens when we begin to take God as word and to trust him. You begin to, instead of looking at all the, the riches of Silicon Valley around us and all the millionaires and billionaires and envying them and wanting to be like them, you know, you, your thought starts to change. You start looking at them. You say, wow, that guy has so much money, but he doesn't have God. How sad, how empty, how fleeting the joys that he has. You begin to think that way because you realize Jesus' words are true. That's what Asaph struggled with in Psalm 73 when he looked at the rich people. But what, what happened after he came to see God and become closer to him? Whom I have, have I in heaven but you? And earth, and, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He came to see, there's nothing here that I want more than God. That's what happens. Trusting God in terms of what God's design is for human sexuality, that, that sex is something meant for marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman and there and there alone. And that's what God has designed, where God has made sex to be. That's hard. It's hard when you're, when you're dating in this world, this world that is constantly telling you, just, just gratify the desires of your flesh. Uh, uh, of course you need to check if you're sexually compatible. If you, if you feel these urges, those urges are meant to be met, go ahead, go on, and enjoy sex with, with your, the person you're dating. Enjoy that. It, it's a challenge to say no to our sinful flesh. It's a challenge when, you, when you're in marriage and you're going through difficult times to say, you know what? I don't know if I love my spouse anymore. Maybe, maybe, my, maybe I love this person over here. That's where my feelings are. And it's okay for me to go and be with this person because that's where my feelings of love are. It's harder to say no to those things, to say no to the flesh and to trust in God and his word. But when you do, when you resist the flesh, and you trust in God's word that sex is for marriage and marriage alone between one man and one woman, and that is God's design, and that is good. You come to see the goodness of it, and you come to realize, like what the author of Proverbs says here, that, that, and he's talking about adultery here, that when you walk out of God's will at the end of your life, you groan. And you say, how I hated discipline. How my heart despised reproof. Christine and I, we were watching recently a documentary, Arnold. I don't know if any of you have seen that. Three-part series on Arnold Schwarzenegger. Very interesting. Him as a bodybuilder, him as an actor, and then him as a politician. I was interested in this because I, 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 I grew up watching Terminator. I grew up carrying, I used to be a gym rat. I had Arnold's encyclopedia of bodybuilding. I used to carry it to the NYU gym with me and read this book and work out. Arnold's a big, big figure in my life. 
And, and this documentary, it was a little hard to watch because it was, it was very self-produced, you can tell. And, uh, you know, part one was about what a great, what an incredible bodybuilder he was, how he wanted bodybuilding. Part two was about what an incredible actor he was and, and how he was the biggest Hollywood star. Part three was about what a great politician he was and how successful he was. And at a certain point, I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I don't know if I can watch this anymore. How good, how great he is and everything. But you know what? There's one part in it, at, in the last part that kind of redeemed it, where he started talking about the biggest mistake he made in his life. And I can tell it was the biggest mistake. And it was when he cheated on his wife. And he said he, he hurt his wife, he hurt his kids, he hurt his family. And, and, and the reality of that set in. I saw that. That despite all of those successes and achievements, when he did not live according to the design of God for sexuality, there was brokenness, there was groaning that he had to live with. Lastly, brothers and sisters, in Philippians, Paul says, you know, even suffering, even suffering, suffering in which he loses everything, his reputation as a Pharisee, his standing in the Jewish community, he lost all of these things, the suffering, the, the ways that he was scourged and beaten, left for dead, shipwrecked, all these different things. He counts them as nothing compared to knowing Christ, and he found even sweeter to be the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. He found that when he was willing to live the life that did what God wanted him to do, when he wanted him to do it, even though it was so painful and so difficult, that even in the midst of suffering, there was a, there was a fellowship there that was so sweet, that was beyond words. Brothers and sisters, this is the cross. This is the life of the cross. The cross is, is, is the symbol of the most painful death that could be imagined in the ancient Roman world. And it is also the symbol of life and the greatest love that the world has ever known. The Bible says that Jesus, for the, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. Brothers and sisters, when we seek with all of our heart to do what God wants us to do, when he wants us to do it, to live a kairos life, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus in that way, we come to experience that this is the greatest joy that this is the greatest pleasure and fulfillment. It's something that the world cannot know, but only comes through walking with Jesus. Let's stand and let's pray together.